How do you do? <laughs> How do you do? And you, um... Bradley, Joe Bradley. Delighted. You don't know how delighted I am to meet you. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched the movie that David has been looking forward to this entire run of nominees, <laughs> Roman Holiday, starring Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. Both in roles that they were not the first choice for, which that's insane. Is wild, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, with Gregory Peck, that's just wild. With Audrey Hepburn, that's insane. I could theoretically think of someone else playing Gregory Peck's part, but like, also not necessarily. Like, let's get into it. Yeah, let's get into the movie itself. Uh, This is one of those movies where the plot either takes five seconds or takes the entire runtime of the movie as I talk about every scene and how great it is. Yes. There's a lot of really good visual gags in this. (laughs) It's kind of the rare romantic comedy that instead of being about constant patter, a lot of it's silent and it is better for it. (laughs) Yeah. The bookends of this where she's in princess mode have a lot of really intensely visual stuff that's great. Yes. Which, again, we'll get into. Yeah. Let's do the short plot, and then we'll get into the details. Sure. Audrey Hepburn plays the princess of blah, 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 country uh, <laughs> that is never specified, but everyone in Europe is obsessed with her. And she is going on sort of this, like, coming out tour, like, here comes the princess. She is in Rome, which is pretty far into the whole thing, and she is having a uh, very clearly signaled nervous breakdown from doing this stuff constantly every day. And it all being kind of rote and boring and also not really her, very performative. And she just wants to go out there and, like, see the people and really see Europe. And it seems like really just see life. Yeah. That largely she has been very sheltered and protected. Though she has been not necessarily protected that well, because when she has a nervous breakdown, a doctor comes in and drugs her with sleeping medication. That doesn't work quickly. No. Or at least not quickly enough. (laughs) Because she just, she makes a break for it out the window and does in fact manage to sneak away and just fall asleep in the street. Where Gregory Peck's character, a reporter who looks like Gregory Peck, (laughs) finds her. Which, on the Gregory Peck scale of handsomeness, he is no longer can't look at him directly because he is as bright as the sun, but he's still like a nine. (laughs) Is it that he's no longer as bright as the sun, or is it that Audrey Hepburn is right there so sun too just doesn't really cut it anymore? (laughs) It's that he's not quite as bright as the sun. Okay. I mean, it's like he's a 9.99 now as opposed to a 12. (laughs) So they have an extremely weird meet cute where she is drugged out of her mind. And he's like, you are drunk and I need to find somebody to take care of you. And nobody will take care of her. And so he ends up bringing her back to his place and just going, just sleep on the couch. It'll be fine just i just can't let something bad happen to you because i'm gregory peck and i'm generally a pretty good guy despite 
the next parts of this story. <laughs> yeah, that whole section has a like, I can't do it's 1953. Is this going to fuck up real bad? Uh, and thankfully, it never does. Oh, no, not this part. The part the next morning. Uh, yes, for sure. But yes, no, there definitely was some like, whoa. You know what? I actually am going to point to this movie from now on when people are like, well, it wasn't until quite recently that you knew not to hook up with somebody who was wasted because Gregory Peck did in Roman Holiday. Yeah, for sure. And like one of the ways that it is very like, ah, the movie has her hit on him hardcore. Yeah. While she's out of it. And you're like, ooh, is this making an excuse for some bad shit? And Gregory Peck is always like, nope. No, it's not. She needs to go to sleep. Anyway, the next morning he sleeps in super late uh, and has to run to work because he has missed his interview with this princess that's going all over Europe. And he tries to bullshit with his boss that he went to the interview, actually, and got all the sort of Pat wrote questions answered that you would want before his boss reveals that the cover story for Audrey Hepburn going missing is that she is taken ill and isn't seeing anyone today. So his deception is revealed and his boss gets pissed at him, but he immediately sees the photograph of her and finally like puts two and two together and then tries to sell an exclusive interview with her that really gets into the nitty gritty and the dirt of her life for five grand to his boss because he has exclusive access to her. She's back at his apartment. (laughs) His apartment, by the way, I think we should mention is like, I have stayed in not very nice hotel rooms that were bigger than his apartment. (laughs) Yeah. It is tiny. And the sofa that she is sleeping on or that he tries to get her to sleep on it's not a sofa (laughs) it's a bench basically it's a glorified bench yeah they do a pretty good job of making him look like poor and down on his luck and then we get to our next section of the movie which is kind of the bulk of the film really which is him trying to follow her around and have a day with her and just basically do this interview surreptitiously without ever revealing to her that he knows who she is and that he is a reporter. And that involves Audrey Hepburn going on her own for a bit and getting the iconic haircut and changing into a cute outfit and having some gelato and having cute interactions with people around Rome and then them meeting back up, which he has conspired to have be so, uh, and then meeting up with uh, another guy who is the photographer for the newspaper Gregory Peck works at and them all going on an adventure on a moped where Audrey Hepburn gets arrested and then they go on other adventures and then the men in black from her mysterious unspecified specified European country come to take her back and they get into a fist fight at a dance hall and she smashes a guitar over a dude's head and all of this stuff I'm going over fast because watch this movie it fucking rules yeah (laughs) yeah actually end of episode yeah but then we get to the third act turn which is she has to go home again she can't be on this Roman holiday forever And he drops her off without her ever really saying, hey, I was secretly a princess this whole time because she's been pretending to be just a girl who has run away from a boarding school. He never really says like, hey, I knew who you were the whole time and I'm a reporter. But there's sort of a we both know there's more going on with the other one here than we're saying. And we're just not going to talk about it. We're just going to say our goodbyes here. 
And then Gregory Peck, who has fallen in love with her because it's Audrey Hepburn and he has spent more than five minutes with her, (laughs) decides he's not going to publish all this embarrassing stuff without context that he could publish from their day together and is then a thousand dollars in the hole with his boss because he makes this big bet with him that he can definitely get this story and not only doesn't get the money but actually takes a huge hit financially to not publish this story he could publish and is then sent on the sort of make-up assignment of the new interview day after the princess has gotten better where Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn have a facial expression close-up off of just facial expression acting, and Audrey Hepburn wins, I think, which is amazing. I think so, but I think only because she has more to communicate. Because his is like, I'm not going to publish the thing, and I'm in love with you. And hers is like, oh, okay, well, wow, I have a lot more to say about this. Yeah. (laughs) She goes through these phases of like, oh, you were a reporter. Are you going to, oh, you're not going to. Oh, I'm in love with you too. But also I'm a princess and I have to leave. I've got to go. They can't say any of this, which is why they're just doing this all through face acting. And she comes down this line of reporters. The way she's conspired to be able to speak to him is, I will now go meet the press. And just introduces herself to all these guys in a line. And you're like waiting for it and waiting for it. And she gets to Gregory Peck and they say hello to each other and she just immediately moves on. And it isn't anticlimactic. It's like, oh, of course, if she stays with him for like a moment longer, she's going to freak out. Then she goes off and Gregory Peck kind of waits for her for a moment. But it just starts walking away in one of the most amazing closing shots in cinema history. I don't know why we don't talk about more where you just see him walking down this empty hallway, sort of ruminating on the experience he just had. And end of film, they do not get together. Yeah, I I mean, I guess maybe that's the reason we don't talk about it is because it's what makes it so different than everything that has come after that is followed otherwise this same sort of trajectory and it's interesting because i kept finding myself during the course of the movie comparing it to it happened one night and thinking this is incredibly charming and beautifully shot and it's set in rome so like every single frame is gorgeous and everyone in it is gorgeous (laughs) Yeah. But I was like, we've basically seen this before. This person who is very high status and very wealthy, who ends up through her own sort of spunk going on this trip, which in her case is like a day trip around Rome, or in Audrey Hepburn's case is a day trip around Rome, but in It Happened One Night is much longer, with a reporter. And then the reporter is like, oh, I love them, so I can't write this piece about them that I was going to write. Mm. And then you have that ending and it's like, oh, no, this is actually something else. And Audrey Hepburn's character is so much more self-possessed and so much less spoiled while being literal royalty (laughs) than Claudette Colbert's character in It Happened One Night. Yeah. I mean, her running away seems less like something that she does all the time. It really does feel like this is the first time ever that she has been let out of the sight of her various handlers. And there's some really charming moments with the way that she deals with money. That is the kind of thing that when you see like incredibly wealthy people or 
literally aristocratic people who never have to deal with that part of life yeah where she's dealing with that that i think are so interesting (laughs) and funny yeah there's this great moment where gregory peck is like oh right you don't have any cash on you i'll just split all the money on me here's 1500 lira and she goes oh my god that's so much and he goes that's a buck 50 and she goes oh it's a thousand but yeah (laughs) yeah Right. And she also figures these things out very quickly, too, which I think is more interesting, is that this film allows for her to be very sheltered and very naive in certain ways, but also to be incredibly self-possessed and very smart in other ways. And that intersection is incredibly charming. And then you throw Audrey Hepburn at it and it's like, oh, my God, this movie, every moment of it is just a delight. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, let's get into the Audrey Hepburn of it all, because... We've seen a couple of introducings before, like introducing the lead of a hundred men and a girl who you've never heard of in your entire life. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And this one is like fucking standing at home plate, pointing out into the stands, fucking introducing Audrey Hepburn. And like the rest of film history is like, yeah, you aren't that fair. The introducing Audrey Hepburn title card is like, she is the star of this movie. And, like, good. Yeah. (laughs) This is simultaneously such a fully formed Audrey Hepburn role and such a, like, 710 split of a part. It is not just that, like, this is straight down the middle. Audrey Hepburn could do this in her sleep, though apparently she fucking could because she does for part of it. That's a really good point. (laughs) (laughs) But it is that Audrey Hepburn is really just giving an amazing performance, like I say, maybe outacting Gregory Peck in a debut American performance that is really easy to fuck up. Oh, yeah. Like you said, it would be really easy to make this girl way too naive to have a, like, common people, if you called your dad, he could stop at all quality to this thing. of Like, yes. well, none of your problems actually matter, poor little rich girl, so fuck off. She's not a brat. <laughs> you don't get any feelings that she is entitled to anything. And in fact, she has this incredible scene at the end where she goes back and all of her attendants are flabbergasted that any of this has happened. And one of them says something to her about duty. And she says, you know, don't use this word with me ever again. Obviously, I know my duty better than you do because... If I didn't, I wouldn't be here and you would never have seen me ever again. Yeah. And the way that she does that is so cool. And I don't mean like hip. I mean like she is so reserved and so in control of herself. And it isn't like, if I didn't know my duty, you'd never see me again. She's really just playing this incredibly difficult and deceptively difficult part and making it look fucking effortless (laughs) yeah and there's so many like the cute little thing at the beginning where she's just playing with her shoe under her dress because she's so fucking bored and then it falls off and she can't find (laughs) it (laughs) yeah and you are seeing some close-up shots of what's actually going on with the shoe but a lot of it is just audrey hepburn's face acting of like trying not to reveal that she's trying to find her shoe. And it's like very good. (laughs) It's very funny. There's so many moments like that where this is just a movie of, I mean, even that scene you were just talking about where she comes back and kind of tells off the servants who were harassing her and drugging her before, 
where you go, oh, that's actually all the space within this film in terms of dialogue. She gets to show how this experience has changed her. Because that last scene is basically dialogueless. Mm-hmm. She is back to just doing head of state pablum stuff for 90% of that dialogue in the last scene. Yeah, it's funny that you say that it's dialogueless because, like, in my mind, there's no talking in that part, even though there is a lot. It's like every reporter gets to ask their one question that was sent in advance. Right. And she has her super pat non-answers. I love that it's the exact set of questions that Gregory Peck bullshits that he had asked her when he's talking to his boss. Oh, this was the thing that he was supposed to go to before. He didn't have a private sit down with her. Right. That's was, what I'm saying. Yeah. I thought the boss was asking him the questions. He didn't give the answers as well as Audrey Hepburn did. (laughs) No, it's not the exact same answers, but it is the exact same pack questions, which is what that scene was sort of making fun of and why he thought he could bullshit his way through it is just like, you just go to this thing and everybody asks the same five questions and they always give the same five answers. And so just like, yeah, she's there. She's a princess. She thinks international cooperation is great. Bye. Before his boss is like, she wasn't there. She's sick. You idiot. Read a fucking paper, he says to the reporter. <laughs> I love that that gives you this sort of way into this last scene where you can read all the subtext because you've already had this scene where they talk through what the text ought to be of this scene. And so you're right. There is like a lot of actual spoken dialogue in that scene. It's that none of it matters. It's all inflection. There's like two moments. There's two lines that are actually breaking from the script of the in-universe script, I think, that are when she says she's going to go meet all of the reporters and when she says her favorite part of the trip was Rome instead of going, oh, how could I decide I love all of Europe? I love that she interrupts herself, too, where she's like, how could I ever pick any city they were all one Rome? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That the moment she figures out she could get away with it, or even that she can't not do it. She just like, it's this split. God, she's so fucking good. Audrey Hepburn is so good in this. The AV Club just published a sort of re-review of this. They do a whole series on romantic comedies. And literally yesterday. It was wild. Yeah. I went to sleep after watching this movie and woke up to them having published this (laughs) re-review. Yeah. But one of the things they do is briefly compare it to, um, it's Before Sunset is the first one, right? The link letter, the first link lettery. Yes. No, Before Sunrise. Thank you. Yes. I was like, wait, what? It's set at night, so what would come next? Hmm. <laughs> it's a real SAT logic puzzle, and I failed it hard. But, like, um, yes, uh, they compare it to that. And I think a thing that a lot of indie movies that kind of try and do what this movie does do is make the internal lives of these characters inscrutable. Make it so you don't know what they're thinking and, oh, you can never really know what another person is thinking or what they're feeling. And, like, you don't know, know what they're thinking in that last scene because they don't have any dialogue and they don't say what they're thinking. But there is a clear dominant read being performed by both of them, I would say, through that entire scene that's very readable but also very human. Mm -hmm. It is not like, my eyes are up so high, I'm very shocked to see you here. (laughs) You can tell yourself what's going on in their head. You can tell a story about what's going on in their head instead of just going, now what 
I bet she, I bet she's sad. Instead of, I bet she's sad, you can go like, oh, now she's angry with him. Now she's thinking he's not going to publish it. She's figured that out. You can see this moment where she figures out she's going to say Rome, and then she just immediately does it, which is great. And God, I just add, like, I want to spend four times as long as that scene takes just talking about that scene at the end of the movie, because the rest of this movie is great, but that scene is incredible. It is incredible. I think it's also worth mentioning that, I think I read this in the AV Club article, but who knows, because I read a bunch of stuff about Audrey Hepburn in the last day and a half, that someone referred to her as the last great silent film actor. Yeah. Which, again, she was never on screen during the silent film era. But because of the way that she could communicate so much with her eyes, you know, a lot of times on this podcast, we have talked about what's frustrating about the super methody people who like are feeling a lot, but we don't see it. (laughs) (laughs) And she, I think actually is in a lot of regards better than a lot of the silent film actors, because instead of communicating stuff with her eyes through like you said these very over the top like eyebrows 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 things she can look down and then look to the side in a way where it just communicates volumes of pain or joy or that she finds something fascinating or that she has a crush on someone or whatever and it's like how are you doing that (laughs) there is genuinely in that last scene The moment where she figures out that Gregory Peck's character has been a reporter the whole time, I swear to God she goes through all five stages of grief in three seconds and they're all readable on her face. Yeah. I don't know how. It's incredible. And just watch this movie. I don't even want to talk about, like, the mouth of truth, like, all the little great scenes in this. Because it is, in a way that other good movies we've watched, like, I don't feel bad spoiling Citizen Kane. I don't even feel bad spoiling this movie. Like, I did tell you everything that happens in the plot of this movie, and I think you'll still have a wonderful time watching it. But there are so many moments in this movie that I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. I just want people to go and experience it. I don't want to talk about what happens in the scene where she gets her hair cut. It's great. Everything that happens in that scene fucking rules. And I think actually that's the thing that always bugs me when people are like, oh my God, spoilers about something. And I'm like, yes, the end is a surprise as compared to almost every romantic comedy ever. But the delight that you get from surprises in this film has nothing to do with that ending and everything to do with these delightful little moments in a dozen delightful little scenes. Yeah. God, I love this movie. As I keep coming back to that last scene, a thing that just occurred to me is the facial expressions she gives in that last scene are actually the only version of the act three turn, how could you betray my trust like this romantic comedy thing? That's usually the hardest scene to pull off in a romantic comedy of like, Making sure the deception is revealed and everyone knows what's really going on, but also making sure that the deceiver is not an unforgivable shit heel is like a real hard thing to real hard turn for mm-hmm. a movie's plot to take. And this movie's plot does take that turn, and Audrey Hepburn has to do all of the performing of that with her eyes, and she does it. Mm-hmm. And she won Best Actress for this at the Oscars and completely earned. <laughs> yeah. 
and then some. Like, I don't even know how there was anyone else nominated in that year. Yeah. I do actually want to touch on Gregory Peck because I think he's actually doing a tremendous job in this to not overshine her in any way. And actually, he was the one who fought for her name to be as large as his on the poster and said, if it's in tiny little letters saying introducing Audrey Hepburn, I'm going to look like an (laughs) asshole because she's going to be a huge star. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. (laughs) But he is threading that needle of allowing her to really be the star and to really, really shine and going toe to toe with her to be worthy of her affection because he is very caring he's very protective of her and we know through this whole thing that he's planning on writing this piece about her though at a certain point you start to realize like oh it's not gonna happen yeah and in that last scene not to keep going back to it but through that entire last scene when the camera is on him he manages to keep unspilled tears in his eyes for the entirety of the scene and it is amazing and so so heartrending to watch because he's never going to experience anything like this again in his life he's just a reporter for the news you know (laughs) yeah and for like a wire service basically for an american news service in rome yeah seems to be what this paper is i do think much like the bit i was doing about gregory peck being incredibly hot but being next to audrey hepburn i do think his performance is deceptively great because he's right next to audrey hepburn giving the most fully formed Jesus Christ a star is here debut performance that we've ever seen. Yes. Nikki was watching this with me and did comment a lot about how is he so non-threatening? This part should be threatening. Right? There are so many parts where he is betraying her trust or he has this power over her, like physically can constrain her, can keep her from leaving, can do shit to her. And you're never like, God, what's going to happen? You're always just like, it's Gregory Peck. It'll be fine. Yeah. And it's interesting because actually Cary Grant was supposed to play this part. And wow, I would not have felt that way. (laughs) No, no. At all. Yeah. Especially after seeing him, you know, knock Catherine Hepburn to the ground at the beginning of Philadelphia Story, which I will never forget. Every time I see (laughs) Cary Grant in a movie, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that guy who is a wife abuser. Yeah. And, like, I don't think Cary Grant, the actor, is, but every time I'm like, yep, that's the guy who threw Catherine Hepburn on the ground. I, I mean, even before that, we talked about this is a guy with the capacity to hit people. Yes. And not just in a physical sense, because, yeah, I think Cary Grant could beat me up. (laughs) And not in a, like, weird Tumblr fetish way, but also maybe in a weird Tumblr fetish way. Yeah. It's hard to say. But also that this is a man with a capacity for violence. Yes. And Gregory Peck doesn't have that. And neither really does Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart doesn't really have that capacity for violence either. See, I thought that, and then we watched It's a Wonderful Life, and I was like, oh, okay, he does, and and it's weirdly scarier because it's coming from someone that I never have seen like this before. You're right, but I think he has to stretch himself in the sense of he has to be terrified by his own capacity for violence. Yes. Cary Grant seems pretty casual about it. Yeah, yeah. Cary Grant could just fucking haul off and slug somebody. Yeah. Like, not in the same way that Clark Gable probably would. With Clark Gable, it's like... (laughs) He's out of control, so he ends up beating somebody up. 
with Cary Grant. I want to do a thermometer chart where like the bottom is is Gregory Peck. Incapable of violence, cannot reconcile his capacity for violence, can perform violence, has hit you. Clark Gable. (laughs) With Clark Gable. Clark Gable has already punched you in the face somehow. I don't know how either. Yeah, but I'm really glad that they cast Gregory Peck in this role that Cary Grant turned down because I feel like this movie would be difficult to watch if I was constantly worried about Audrey Hepburn's safety. Yeah. Instead of like occasionally checking and remembering, oh yeah, he's doing this to get a story. And it's worth saying that Eddie Albert as the kind of artsy bohemian photographer is also doing a pretty good job of being non-threatening. Yeah. (laughs) And is funny and also kind of charming as the like semi-beatnik sidekick. He gets to be in a weird way a kind of audience surrogate character because Gregory Peck looks like Gregory Peck. Yes. Yeah, right. (laughs) And has come in with this weird meet cute with Audrey Hepburn already. And so the photographer guy gets to be this kind of audience surrogate character of like, yeah, it is really hilarious that this princess is just going around having a day. I really like her. She's maybe my best friend in the world. (laughs) You're right. I could never hurt her in the space of a day. Yes. And like, it's great because it seems believable that this guy who's kind of a good natured idiot that just wants to go off and bang his hot Italian girlfriend would just be instantly charmed by Audrey Hepburn and not in a romantic way, just in a like, yeah, she's great. I'm having a great time. This is a fun day. Right. Like the friend that you can always count on to be cool to your girlfriend and be (laughs) 75% as in love with her as you are, but not 1% more. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in this movie is just doing great work. I I don't know what to say. Yeah. Just watch it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just watch this movie and 10. Yeah. Honestly, 8.5 of that is casting. Not that the rest of the movie is bad, but like, just Jesus Christ, Audrey Hepburn's here. 10. (laughs) Yeah, but see, like, we're going to watch Breakfast at Tiffany's and you're going to have different feelings about that. (laughs) That's fair, but I don't think that it's just Audrey Hepburn is an automatic 10. I think Audrey Hepburn in this movie is an automatic 10 in a way where, like, anybody else in that role, I feel like I would start nitpicking the plot of this movie, you know? And we've already said that part ought to be impossible. You should not be charmed by this girl. On paper, this girl is just, like, just, like... Wow, spoiled princess doesn't want to be princess. Right. And on paper, Gregory Peck is just like this tremendous asshole taking advantage of a girl who is... Extremely sheltered and in a very vulnerable condition. (laughs) Yes, thank you. That, yes. And because of the two central performances being so good... The movie's just a 10. Like, none of that shit matters. It's just a 10. Oh, one thing I do want to mention is that the director for this, William Wyler, is not a favorite of ours. And it's interesting because I feel like this movie took everything that he is good at and put it in this movie. So he directed Dodsworth, which... (laughs) Wuthering Heights... The Letter, which was the Uh, Betty Davis one. Yeah. Little Foxes, which I liked, but you didn't like. Uh, Yeah. Mrs. Miniver, which was like, okay-ish. I will say, outside of Dodsworth, 
I don't think I dislike any of those movies for the directing. Dodsworth is just fundamentally a movie that shouldn't be made with a message that is bad about a guy I hate who's the title character. Yes, it's a terrible film. I mean, Wuthering Heights also was like a movie that shouldn't be made about a total asshole. But it's also a Bronte novel, so you have to respect it for some reason. Right, and cutting half of Wuthering Heights is just like, well, no director is going to make that work. Right, and that's a script issue really more than anything else. Right. He also did The Best Years of Our Lives, which when I think about that, all of these films, even though I didn't really like most of them, oh, and The Heiress as well, he does seem to be capable of getting incredible performances out of people. And now I'm wondering if maybe it was not just the casting of Montgomery Clift and the heiress in a role where he was kind of a blank nobody fuck boy. But maybe William Wyler was like, yeah, yeah, just do that thing because that's the character. <laughs> yeah, I do think the direction of this is just kind of like. I don't know, it's Rome. Like, put the camera and show Rome. We're done. And it's like, yeah, you are. Correct. In terms of, like, the cinematography, a lot of this is just good location scouting with a camera pointing at it. Yes. And the script is brilliant. Yeah. But a lot of this is silent, like we said. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here where somebody had to come up with all of these two-minute-long adorable bits, and I don't think it was exclusively improvisation on the part of Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Maybe it was, but some of it is so obviously blocked that I don't think that that would work. (laughs) I do want to say, like, I think this movie is well-directed in the sense of it knows its core competencies and it delivers on them. Like, I don't think it is well-directed in the sense of I spend a lot of time going like, God, nobody else on Earth could have directed this movie, you know? Or even just any feeling of a particular style. Like, it's not a DeMille, you know? No. I did think to myself several times, thank God Lubitsch is dead. Because, <laughs> like... Oh, God. Imagine... He, he wasn't. God, I thought he died in... I thought he died in 49. I thought we were free. Uh, I think we are free, but I think he's still alive at this point. No, he died in 47. You're right. You're right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We are free. This is plot-wise so close to the setup we always like in a Lubitsch film. Before it goes like, there's no delicate balancing act here. The guy can just be as much of a shit heel as he wants, and the princess should just give him what he wants. Oh, and also, like, how much would he have loved Audrey Hepburn and then just ruined her by putting her in a bunch of shitty movies we hated? Making her charm her way through a badly plotted version of this where she has to make up for all Gregory Peck's fuck-ups, and they wouldn't have... And by by Gregory Peck, I mean Maurice Chevalier. Yes. (laughs) It is really a blessing that this movie was not directed by Lubitsch very particularly, and just wasn't part of that era in general. Yeah, it was nice to have the guy who semi-kidnaps the princess <laughs> be a generally good guy. Yeah, and like regret his actions and not be like made king of the world for cheating on her. Right. So next week, we are watching the final 1953 film, which is The Robe, uh, which is a big biblical Roman epic. Yay. But it does have Richard Burton in it. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. So, like, I'll like watching Richard Burton even while I probably hate every bit of this. (laughs) 
Susan, I don't have the tab open. How long is this film? Uh, two hours and 15 minutes. But it's not three hours. Okay, okay. No, yeah, it's not three hours and 45, which we're going to watch some of those. Yeah, it's shorter than Quo Vadis. Okay, yeah, thank yeah. God. Okay. So tune in next week to hear how much we hated this movie. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it'll surprise me. It won't, though. I've drawn it. Probably won't. It won't. Yeah. And until then. God, this movie ruled. It was so good. Yeah. I don't even need to do the catchphrase. If movies were like this, I wouldn't need to classify them. They would just be. It's just. Cinema. Ah. Yeah. (sighs) Bye, everybody. Uh, Goodbye. I don't know how to say goodbye. Make many words. Don't try it.